Welcome to the Black Voice. It's time to get real. We are here to motivate and promote positive change for black culture. And this is a show featuring you. Call into the show 24-7 at anchor.fm slash blackvoicej. From there, hit message and you can be heard on future episodes. In the meantime, be sure to subscribe and rate on Spotify or Apple Podcasts to be sure you don't miss any future episodes. This is the Black Voice with Jay Clark. Y'all stay tuned. The following message is from our sponsor, Negritis. Negritis is a family-owned and operated Afrocentric apparel boutique, celebrating the beauty of blackness and the power of melanin. Find Negritis on Instagram at Negritis. That's N-E-G-R-A-T-E-E-S. Or shop at Etsy.com slash shop slash Negritis. That's Etsy.com slash shop slash Negritis. Welcome to the Black Voice. Today I'm joined by two very special guests. I'm thankful for them being with me today. I have Bruce Jackson here with me, who's an active professor in Spanish and Italian um, at the University of Wake Forest in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. As well, I have my guy Kiko here, who is a PhD candidate at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville um, in Latin and Caribbean literature. So I welcome them both to the show. Welcome, guys. Thank Thank you. you. No problem. We're going to touch on a couple different topics. Kiko, if you would just let the people know on the dissertation um, that you've been working on, I think was really interesting. Yes. So my specialty is gender, race, and sexuality in Latin American and Caribbean. But my dissertation encompasses the black male characterization, but more from a psychological standpoint, because traditionally in Latin American and Caribbean literature, the black man is viewed in essential terms as far as his body, musculature, but not really his psychological abilities. And so I'm trying to change that trend to represent more contemporary uh, characterization of that, of that persona. Absolutely. And that's, that's so interesting to me, um, if I could comment on it, because, I mean, the black man is always described as this, this physical brute, his strength, his power, his force, but mm-hmm. it's, it's never, you know, attacked from a, intellectual standpoint is you know what's going on inside of his head so i'm definitely looking forward to seeing the completion i hope that's something i can get my hands on myself you know i'd love to check that out you can for sure and it'll be published in english so everyone can be able to read it for sure for sure we're going to dive right into some of these these topics so we kind of talked bruce and i about some things we wanted to touch on today um we're going to take it to straight to the to the nitty-gritty so interracial marriages, um, this is something that, of course, in this climate has been talked about, you know, can you be a black a BLM supporter and be in an interracial relationship? What are the ins and outs of that? So I, I propose that question to you guys. Can a person be pro-BLM, pro-Black Lives Matter, and also be in a relationship, a marriage outside of their race? Oh, Kiko, I'll let you start. I think you are. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, touchy. <laughs> I guess I guess in this case I'm the case study because <laughs> yeah. I'm married to a white woman, so and we have two kids together. Uh to answer the question, absolutely. Uh it doesn't change my blackness. I'm still a black man and I'm still enduring the experiences as all people of color are. Every single day we have to walk in the streets and 
people are going to view us a certain way. So uh, my personal views, I, I don't see any difference or conflict between someone being in an interracial relationship and Black Lives Matter. Well, I, I, I would agree with Kiko, and um, I would add that I think simply in terms of the sheer number of, of whites that we've seen participating and allying around Black Lives Matter, that um, we should appreciate uh, any union, I think, uh, between whites and, and blacks. But I think we should um, um, celebrate those, those ties and, and, and allies between whites and blacks and not diminish them in any way. And that's something we previously talked about um, in an interview on this show is we got so much support, man. So much support from every community, all races. This has evolved into a human movement. You know, Black Lives mm -hmm. Matter five years ago was, you know, probably 75% black folks, you know, who are now hollering, you know, fighting to be heard. But it seems that this time around, not only all races are joining, all countries. I mean, there's worldwide protests, there's worldwide, you know, advocation and support for black people in America, which is, which is crazy. You know, you, you never thought you, you would see something or so. Um, but with interracial marriages, you know, I, I kind of switched scripts. So we, we're at the cookout. We at the cookout, y'all. I'm gonna paint a picture mm -hmm. for you. You walk into the cookout, your, your cousin TJ comes in and he's in an interracial marriage. And your cousin Boo Boo comes in and he's he's in a gay relationship. Who who is ostracized more at the family cookout between those two parties? The gay relationship, I think. Uh, Bruce and I, we've talked about this um, a little bit ourselves, the, the homophobia within the Black community and the transphobia, the LGBTQIA phobia. I, I think that uh, culturally in our communities, I think that's still uh, viewed as a taboo. And I think religion has a lot to do with the uh, non-acceptance of, of different sexualities that aren't uh, cis, straight. And, and that's a problem that we're gonna to continue to have. And it's also probably one of the criticisms that I would have of Black Lives Matter as far as not having all the different intersectionalities of blackness represented as well. But I do understand that in the moment, police brutality, that's the main message. But I think we will have to eventually branch off into other issues within the black community as well. Word. I would agree. Um, I think the black community has certainly, in in terms of of its acceptance of of homosexuality of the LGBTQ community, the majority of the black community is still widely conservative in terms of of uh, of LGBTQ issues, and I think we have a long way to go um in terms of that and i i would i would just say that um i hope that you know to uh our fellow listeners out there that we that we do make uh a better effort uh that we do try harder to to accept and and bring into the fold our lgbtq community community because i think um, until we are all appreciated and valued, um, I don't. I, I don't know how how authentic we can be about uh, Black Lives Matter until we're all a part of that of that movement.
Absolutely. LGBTQ included. Absolutely. And this is a conversation that was necessary and we, we want to have. We want to make it clear that we're here to understand. You know, we're not singling out. Like, this isn't that type of conversation. We all, I think, is a consensus that we truly believe we can't fight this great fight and leave our loved ones behind, leave our brothers and sisters behind just because, you know, they happen to think differently than us. Give us a, a sense of geography, guys. I know, um, Bruce, you're out in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, correct? I am. Mm-hmm. And, and Kiko, where are, you, where are you posted? I'm in Knoxville, Tennessee. Knoxville, Knoxville. So just, just let us know, you know, what is the temperament of um, the current times as far as the BLM movement, as far as social justice um, in relation to what you guys are saying? Well, I, I would say that, of course, like in most uh, cities across the U.S., um, I think it's safe to say that uh, the, Black, the Black Lives Matter movement is, is, is still visible here, but it, of course, is not as visible as it was uh, a week or two ago. Uh, but there are still efforts here locally and, and groups that are out there fighting for uh, racial justice and, and, and equity. Here, just uh, last night, uh, there was a protest and rally around the abolitionist project here and the defunding of the police. So there's still a presence out there and it really does give hope around the movement that things will, will, will finally change. And I think in the beginning, uh, one of my big concerns and big questions uh, was whether this was going to be a, a movement or a moment. And I think we are seeing, perhaps it's still too early, but I think we are seeing that the um, Black Lives Matters movement is is a movement in its own in its own right in more than a moment, and uh, I'm encouraged and, and optimistic about what I'm seeing here locally. You can definitely see that the the move towards a more equitable society um, is 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 still very very, very much there and, and, and visible. Dev, how is it down there in, in Knoxville, Kiko? Well, on the contrary to what Bruce was describing, uh, we had some advocacy earlier in the process. I'd say about a strong three weeks after the Floyd murder. But my wife, she's been to two protests. But really, honestly, after Juneteenth, things are really cooled down in Knoxville. Uh, there's an Appalachia feel about it. This t- part of Tennessee uh, varies a lot, even from West and Middle Tennessee, because we're in Appalachia. And so there's a lot of resistance against Black Lives Matter here. I, have, I must say, I wear my Black Lives Matter face guard when I go out in public. I get a lot of stares. I get a lot of sneers. Uh, I've had experiences with my kids at an ice cream parlor, and people have their freedom blue line symbols that don't tread on me symbols those are very prevalent here we actually have counter protests here uh, the last few weeks against the whole black lives matter movement to sort of promote this mm. right-wing conservatism that's going on and that's been around you know ever since the trump election in 2016 i think that's interesting there you know you you, you kiko you talk about the counter protests um I've participated in several protests in the last couple of nights here. 
Um, and I mean, not only protests, but, but rallies and, and educational experiences, right? And I've yet to see any counter protests. So I think that certainly speaks to the ambience in Tennessee. East Tennessee. East Tennessee. Yeah. For sure. But also because it's a very bubbled environment, it's always going to be like this, whether it's North Carolina, Tennessee, whether it's Illinois. Mm-hmm. There's just certain pockets like that, especially where I'm from in Franklin, Tennessee, which was it experienced one of the most intense battles of the Confederacy in the Civil War, the Battle of Franklin. Mm-hmm. 20,000 people died in that battle. And still to this day, there's a glorification. There's a lot of Civil War memorabilia that represents the town. But it also has a non-Southern feel to it, too, because we have a lot of people implanted from the North, from the West. We have a lot of people that migrated from Central America. But then you go 30 miles south of where I'm from in Franklin, and it's almost um, Alabama is a very is a very super conservative feel about it. The Klan still marches in those areas 50 miles from where I'm from to the south. Mm-hmm. And I think a, an important word you just said there, Kiko, is pockets. Pockets, man. We ain't going to be accepted everywhere. And I think uh, a lot of us are starting to realize it. There's racists everywhere. You know, think about some, some of the towns in, in Wyoming's of the world. You just mentioned Alabama, uh, Georgia, certain parts of Indiana. You know, certain parts of the country we just we just won't be accepted in, no matter how much mm-hmm. we try. Um, as a black man, we're we're kind of taught to accept things, and I would say turn the other cheek. We kind of get used and adapted to racism and oppression. In this current time, when you're experiencing and seeing, you know, direct opposition to such a movement that's so powerful and positive, as a black man, are you more apt to? you know, lash out and say something to these people? Or are you even more reserved in this time because you know the, the temperaments that are out there? Well, I think personally, you know, I, 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 I kind of go back and forth, you know, because as an academic, um, you work in a particular field that kind of demands measure and reflection, right? Um, But still, on the other hand, you can't help but get emotional sometimes, right? And Hmm. when you when you see certain racist acts and and uh, expressions, so it's it's easy to get drawn into that. And it's easy to to react. And I think that's initially what brought me or what took me to the streets, right? To protest. Um, but I'm empowered by that. I'm empowered by, by what I see. Um, you know, when I turn, when I turn on the news and I, and I, and I see that um, a certain CEO who has, you know, hurled racial, epithets at some at someone has been has had to resign you know those I think those things kind of motivate us all to 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 call out um those racist acts to to make sure that people are being held held accountable and to go out and be active um anti-racist um so so yeah I think there are for me personally there are two sides 
of 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 this issue um one that demands that i go to the classroom and and i try to teach my students to to resist and and fight against racism in all forms you can't help but but respond right in a human way um and that's not <laughs> no it's certainly not just turning the other cheek anything you could add there to a to a young black man you're trying to understand how to react when experience this opposition these days yes i i think you have to really test it spatially sometimes you have to pick and choose your battles very carefully but i must say that after the floyd murder i said that i was not going to get on social media at all for the whole month of june just out of respect because I didn't want to see a bunch of garbage on social media and a lot of people's opinions about it. But I have to say that I had so much ire and anger that I did go on social media and as I put up a video and I've been a lot more aggressive, I think even more so than I am because I'm usually one of those types that a lot of my posts, probably 80% of them are about social issues anyway on Facebook and these different platforms. But when I go out in public, I must say that I'm treated a lot more positively, and I think it goes back to the question you posed initially about interracial relations. I think the fact that I'm in an interracial marriage gives me somewhat of a light of positivity towards the, the public, because when I go out with my kids, people smile at me more, I notice, if I'm with my kids, because it signals to them, oh, that's an active Black dad. And it goes against the stereotype of the deadbeat black dad that's not involved in the per person's life. So there's just so many different levels to it. But in public, I'm a lot more careful. I don't trust really um, people as much as I did before. I, I really don't. It, it's hard to trust people, you know, when, when these types of situations happen and people are telling you, I'm not going to join your side. I'm not going to join your side of advocacy. I'm going to continue living this way because I don't have to stick myself out in the sand and do things to help people out. And that's fine. You have a privilege to do that. But as a black person, I don't have that privilege. I'm visible and I'm always chancing my life as, as Bruce is as well and yourself. So we don't have the luxury to be quiet. We have to be active. I, I, I think Kiko is, is right. We do not have the luxury of standing idly by and, you know, folding our arms. Um, but at the same time, we, I think we have to be cognizant. We have to um, be aware of the kind of restraints, right, that are socially placed on to Black professionals, right? Um, Kiko, I, I, I think you would agree right that that african-american men and women are generally not allowed to be upset allowed to be angry right yeah, there's certain stereotypes and connotations that go along with 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 that kind of aggressiveness right so for sure for sure so there's certainly privilege to be had specifically for, for white people who are allowed to be angry, right, about certain things that, that Black people simply aren't allowed to be angry about, right, because you come off as 
belligerent and the angry, you know, we talk about the angry black woman or, or the, the thuggish, right, black guy. So it's, 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 we have to be careful with that and we have to know how to manage um, our, our emotions and feelings. Um, I often hear about the term respectability, right, and how to, to be respectable in order to gain a kind of um, acceptance, right, or legitimacy. But I have pushed against that in the last couple of weeks, right, in the protests and, and, and even on social media, right? I've, 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 I've pushed back on that. Um, but you you have to be careful, I think. Even I mean, we just have to be realistic and 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 take note of that um, because it it costs, right? There are certain risks in in showing your true self, in especially in in academia, right? Um, and allowing oneself to be vulnerable in that sense. Uh, there are risks, and I think most Black professionals are keenly aware of those risks. Oh yeah, without a doubt. It is, is academia, is every facet of life, especially social life. When you interact with people, we, we have this intense pressure placed on us as people of color to behave a certain way. Take exhibit A that we have in office. Could you imagine Obama behaving like that? <laughs> right, right. Obama would have never been in office. Are you, yeah. are you kidding me? Yeah. Like, does the sort of posturing that's allowed from the white male hegemonic system that's just not a, available for black men and women and people of color. Man, that's that's a whole we could we could get into that all day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Man, it, but it's clear, man. Black people are hurting. Black men are hurting. And something Bruce said earlier is, I like the comment that you were planning on staying off of social media, but this was such a a catastrophic event. Like I, I can go back to the mindset of me watching the actual video like before i even saw a bunch of social reactions I, I saw the video early and i had planned on just watching it maybe fast forward into what happened but it was it was so gripping man it was it was so real mm-hmm. that this man is laying on the ground and you know we didn't have to get back into that but i do it, it it's important that we're conscious of this emotional state that we're in because we do have that tendency to lash out and react in negative ways we just have to to realize that we're hurting and it's okay. I'll add that, you know, as, 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 as much as I would like to say that allowing our emotions to become heightened and allowing our actions to be, you know, governed by those emotions in a negative way, as much as I would like to say that, you know, that should be, avoid it, I, I often ask, you know, whose who's interest does that kind of behavior serve, right? When we're told to act a certain way, when we're told to, to protest peacefully, right? Um, who are we trying to make comfortable? So I often, you know, think in those terms um, and, I push against them sometimes because I know that in the imagery, I think of, of, of most <laughs> older white Americans, right? The, the protests, uh, the peaceful protests of the sixties is, is what um, a lot of them would, would, would like to see. 
Um, and I think, you know, there's some nostalgia in there, you know, for certain people. Um, but I, 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 I also think that at, at certain times, heightened emotions can also be effective. And of course, I'm not advocating for violence or anything like that. But I do think that we should always keep in mind whose interests are we, are we actually serving when we're um, being peaceful, good little soldiers. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. And it's, it's clear, though, that we have to start the, the healing process in some fashion. We have to start creating change. And uh, it's believed to me that that's clear. It comes through learning and growth. Um, so you guys, given you both an education, we've talked a lot of HBCUs on this show. And the more we talk about it, I, I kind of start to see that as an end goal. But I, I think it has to start earlier than that, you know, earlier than when we're making that decision for college. So what I ask to you guys, what age do you think that Black education should start? And is this something that's in school, outside of school? You know, what, do you, what can you guys say to that? Um, well, I'll just say quickly that I don't think Black education has any, you know, age limit. And I think, first of all, we have to ask, like, what is Black education? True, um, true. There are so many, I think there's just so many aspects of, 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 Black education that are tied into our experience, right? Um, it doesn't have to be education in the sense, in the traditional sense. Um, I can remember certain, you know, songs or, or certain aspects of Black culture that I learned as a child that had nothing to do with traditional forms of education. So um, I don't necessarily think that there is a specific age for tapping into to black education, uh, and I and I would and I would argue that 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 we we learn what it means and what it is and what it feels like to be to be black from I don't know I would I would say from from way from early on. So um, I don't I don't know if you can you can put in an an age or number to it, but I would certainly, if, I mean, if we want to think in terms of traditional education, just as early as, as, as kids start school. I mean, we learn certain traditions of the, of the mainstream American history early on, right? The Pledge of Allegiance, for example. But I didn't learn the, the, what we call the Black Anthem until I was around 12 or 13. So uh, I'll give you a number. How about school age, you know, <laughs> six, seven years old? Because our experiences in life, we, we have to learn things at an earlier pace because we're confronted mm. with that pressure at an early age from the outside, from society. And so my parents told me the importance of myself and my identity at a very young age. I probably got talks about topics like sex at an earlier age than most people did. But I think most Blacks have that sort of understanding anyway because we're confronted with such violence and aggression and resistance. And so you have to program yourself when you're growing up, when you raise kids, they need to know things at an earlier age. Kids are, are innocent, yes, but kids don't need to be innocent to the world too because they're growing up in a cruel world. That's just like my parents, they gave me a book when I was around 10 years old. It was called The Pictorial History of Black America. Ebony published it. It's a three-part series. And that book changed my life because 
I could see myself represented in that book. This history was never been taught in our schools. We were not taught about uh, Juneteenth. I knew about Juneteenth when I was when I was a kid because I read yeah. that book. And so people this year are just now discovering what Juneteenth meant. Black people, some of them are. And that tells you how limiting our education really is. So I think the earlier the better. Well, Pico, I I I I want to go back to something you said because you mentioned violence, right? And I think this goes back to the point um, that I was trying to make earlier about the idea of education and what do we mean when we say education? Because of course, talking about violence is 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 a different kind of um, education, I think, and. I've talked about this before with, with other colleagues, especially when, for example, someone mentions the specific talks you know, that parents have to have with their children about violence and, and racism, right? Uh, that can be thought of as a kind of, of education. But I think it's, it's, it's also interesting that, at, at least for me, when I was a kid, you know, my parents never had to have that conversation with me because it was already internalized, right? It was already something that I'd seen. There was no need to say, you know, watch out or, 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 or you know, don't antagonize the police or, or these mm-hmm. kind, you know, these things that you hear from parents nowadays um, are, are certainly experiences that I had already seen at an early age. So no one really ever had to sit down and talk to me. My parents never had to tell me like, hey, when you're stopped by the police, make sure they can see your hands, make sure you answer the questions, don't talk back, you know, all of these things that, that you um, that you hear now. Um, and that's not to say that no one was doing it, you know, 35 years ago. It's just that where I grew up, it was already something you saw and it was internalized and there was no reason to be told um, how to behave in front of the policeman, right, or the police, because you, you, you saw it because of the neighborhood that you, you know where you grew up. So that's what I mean when I say education can be, I mean, depending on the, the kind of, of, of education that you're referring to, um, it could be taught early on. When we talk Black education these days, it's more so about the Black experience and, and how to cope and how to adapt with that. Not necessarily the history. Now, we have to learn from the past and the ones before us, of course, but we almost have to shift the focus onto the current times and the future. And a book tip I just want to throw out to all the listeners is Tiny Easy Coats Between the World and Me. Um, I don't know if you guys are familiar with that title, but... I am. Oh, man, that, that book pretty much sums this convo up in a nutshell. So we're in an election year, and we kind of talk about Trump and his his antics, to say the least. Um, there's a lot of information out there. And listeners, I, I want you guys to keep perspective. We are in an election year. So despite all the, the hoopla and what's going on in the media, this Joe Biden is, is the Democratic candidate, which is the self-appointed Black leader, if you ask the media. Um, what, what do you guys say is the, the true meaning of a Joe Biden election? And of course, this is opinionated, this is political. Um, but in you guys' opinion, is this a positive? Is this a negative? You know, what, who is Joe Biden to Black people? Kiko, I'll let you tackle that one. Oh, gosh, we could be here all day for this question. <laughs> Heavy. <laughs> I have a lot to say about this guy. But I'll say this much. Uh, I've been in close talks with about 10 other Black people. 
five of them are going to support him and five of them are not going to support him. They're not going to support Trump, but we're probably going to write someone else in or something like that because the problem with Biden is that, and it kind of scares me in a way, like we're in a case 22. If Trump gets in again, I think that there may be even more of a chance for black advocacy under a repeat of Trump than under Biden. I think with Biden, I think it's going to be complacent. I think white liberals in particular are going to give themselves a pat on the back. We've seen this story before. And this stuff is going to be pushed even more under the rug. Because when people vote, they don't think about black interests at all anyway. I was I was listening to a 538 politics podcast from May 26th. And Michael Cohen, who is a manage, he's a managing editor from uh, 538 Politics, he quotes a political scientist study as saying, as white support increases from zero to 100%, the likelihood of adoption of policy preferences increases from roughly 10% to 60%. In other words, the more support that you get from white people, the more likely a politician will present their interest. As black support rises from zero to 100%, the odds of enactment fall from 40 to 30%. That tells you right there that people are not pushing that issues in the forefront. Reparations, there's no discussion about reparations. There was a bill that Representative Sheila Jackson from Texas, she put into Congress, I think last year, I think it's called HR 40. She put that in, but it's just a study to sort of um, see if this could work with reparations. But there's never any sort of policy that talks about reparations, education disparities in black communities. All these things that I feel like affect us, they're never brought to the Democratic cause. We're basically used as pawns when it comes to election time. And I think that that's something that needs to be addressed. I understand that it's a lesser two evils environment that we're in. But how long is this going to continue when we just look over again? Well, I'd say, you know, it looks like Biden is, 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 is who, you know, we, we have, you know, as in opposition to <laughs> Donald Trump. So um, I'm not as optimistic as, as I, I would have been under, you know, under circumstances. But um, he is the... Democratic nominee. So I, I, I often wonder, though, will he be able to fix or at least um, address the racial divide? Um, I know what we we cannot do is as a people. Right. Uh, what we can't do is is let's say, you know, Biden, Biden wins in, in November. I mean, what we cannot do is is throw our hands in the air and say, OK, we're done. Right. Uh, we have. We are now free of, of Donald Trump, and, and we can all go back to our, quote-unquote, post-racial society. I mean, we, we, we cannot do that. I don't think that that is, is an option. Um, I think, you know, four years of, of race baiting and, and not having uh, a cabinet or, or administration that reflects the diversity of this country, I think we're all kind of tired and of that and we want to see change but i often wonder if 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 biden will be the president to usher in the change that i think we're demanding at this moment it sounds like regardless of who wins it's clear the 
The fight ain't over, whether it's Trump, Biden, but uh, Kiko, Bruce, any final words for the people today before we get off? Yeah, well, I, I do have something, I guess, words for you. I, I'm uh, happy to have uh, collaborated with you, and I, I want to thank you for, for providing this forum, uh, The Black Voice. I think it's important work that you're doing now, and, and I wish you all the best. Oh, thank you. Thank you guys for joining me, absolutely. Um, I think the people definitely been in great company today. We had two great guests, Bruce and Kiko, with us. Um, so I appreciate you guys coming on, sharing your perspective, and you know, helping us educate. Thank you Thank so you. much, Jay. No doubt. And don't forget, guys, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook at Blackwood Jay. Of course, subscribe and rate us on Spotify and Apple just to help us reach more people out there. And of course, the voice box is always open 24-7. Visit anchor.fm slash blackboyj. Find the messages tab and record something to be heard on future episodes. Well, thank you guys all for tuning in today. This is the Black Voice. Peace. Thank you for tuning in to The Black Voice, where we motivate and promote change for black culture. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe and rate on any platform that you're listening on to help us reach more people. Also, don't forget to participate. Visit anchor.fm slash blackvoicej, hit message, and be heard on future episodes. There's power in numbers, there's power in communication, and together we shall surely rise. This is The Black Voice with Jay Clark. Peace.